Your West Philly Community Radio Station. In the last three decades, the prison population in Pennsylvania has risen by 600%, while violent crime has stayed put or gone down. Politicians, prosecutors, and police targeted low-income communities of color, stopping, harassing, and arresting our neighbors, and leaving whole generations with criminal records. Enough is enough. Incarcerate PA is a coalition of individuals and organizations working to put an end to the damaging system we call mass incarceration. And our three-point platform outlines how we aim to get there. First, we say, no new prison. That means canceling the $450 million construction of Greaterford and passing a moratorium against future prison projects. New prisons waste our resources and help cause the future they claim to prepare for. The 19 new prisons built in the last 33 years haven't made us safer. They've just allowed us to continue in the wrong direction. Second, we call for decarceration itself. That means reversing the policies of mass incarceration and reducing the prison population. We can't stop building prisons and keep the failed laws and policies that filled them to begin with. Mandatory minimums must go. Everyone should be eligible for parole. People with substance abuse problems should get treatment not jail time. Mass incarceration is a product of bad laws, and we need to change them. Finally, we understand that the real problems in our communities can't be ignored. That's why the third point of our platform calls for community reinvestment. We want the money being wasted on prisons to be reinvested in schools, health care, social services, job training classes, and addiction treatment programs. These are the things that actually make our community safer, and it's time we made them our priority. Our platform is a plan, but our strength is in the thousands of people all across the state and country who are standing up against a broken, oppressive system. Join us every Saturday from noon to one to hear how they're working to create a world without prisons. And welcome to 88.1 WPEB, uh, Philadelphia. This is Decarcerate Radio. We're here every Saturday with you on WPEB from noon to one. We've got a great guest with us here today, a longtime member of Decarcerate, Thomas Dichter, and he's going to provide us with some context that's frequently missing from our conversations because we only have an hour. We can't go and break down all of the historical um, roots of mass incarceration. But we, we have Thomas here today, and he's going to do that for us. Um, do it all in one go so that every time you listen to us in the future, you can go back and be like, what, what were they talking about? What did, what do you mean by that? You know, new Jim Crow or, you know, roots of slavery or black liberation or, you know, and then you can go back and you can listen to Thomas explaining it all for you uh, on this podcast, which will be posted like all of our shows on decarceratepa.info slash radio. So, Thomas, do you want to introduce yourself, uh, say a little bit about your history with Decarcerate, what kind of committees you're on here, and maybe, you know, in the very few hours that you're able to spend doing things not related to Decarcerate, you know, what do you do in, in those hours, too? Sure. All right. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, my name is Thomas Dichter. Um, I've been involved with Decarcerate PA for about two and a half years now. Um, I work with the media committee, uh, working on our press and social media presence. 
I work on the MELT committee dealing with immigration, detention, and deportation issues and their intersection with the criminal legal system. Um, I also work with a statewide organizing committee, um, which is heating up. We're working to build a statewide network against mass incarceration in Pennsylvania, and I've been working a lot with folks in Harrisburg, and we actually have a meeting coming up. If anyone from Harrisburg is listening out there uh, uh, on the 26th of April. And uh, also, I've been involved with the Action Committee and some of their undertakings, like marching from Philadelphia to Harrisburg last spring. It's hard to believe that was almost a year ago. And I would be remiss if I didn't also point out that we got a full house. A lot of people from the radio crew are here today. So um, we got Ashley, Liana, Anna, and Dave all here. And you'll no doubt hear all of them chime in at one point or another um, is if they can get close enough to a mic to be heard. Um, why don't you start us off with uh, with a sort of outline of or, or what kind of things you're going to be talking about. I mean... You're here to provide us with a historical context for mass incarceration, but some people might not even be familiar with what mass incarceration, what we mean by mass mm-hmm, incarceration. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, yeah, the first thing I wanted to do today was to talk a little bit about this concept of mass incarceration and the history of that concept and that term, um, and then also the history of the, the movement that is taking shape to end it. Um, and uh, I thought that there's really not one historical context for mass incarceration, the one frame that gives it meaning. Um, so what I thought might be helpful would be to take a look at mass incarceration, this phenomenon that we've seen emerge in the past 35 years or so, um, and think about it um, from a couple different angles historically in a couple different frames. Um, first, there is the longer history of imprisonment in the United States in which Philadelphia, of course, plays a very important role as the site of Eastern State Penitentiary, which was one of the very first modern penitentiaries and really prisons in the sense that we think of them, in the, not just in America, but in the world. Um, then I want to speak a, a little bit, too, about um, the movements of the 1960s and 1970s that the movement to end mass incarceration uh, really follows from in a lot of ways and has inherited some legacies from. And then the last kind of angle I wanted to look at mass incarceration from uh, is within the context of the larger, longer African-American freedom struggle um, that has been going on in this country and on this continent for hundreds um, and hundreds of years. And to think a little bit about how today's fight against uh, mass incarceration and the movement for decarceration fits into that and resonates with that history. That sounds like at least an hour's worth of material, <laughs> so we should probably we should probably get started. Sort of back to that question um, of you know what is mass incarceration, or what do we what do you mean by mass incarceration when you're talking about um, the history of it, and and what is it? Just an outline of what are what are we fighting against in decarcerate? Sometimes we lose sight of that. Mm-hmm. So mass the term mass incarceration generally refers to the current unprecedented rates of growth of the prison system in the United States. We have about 2.3 million people incarcerated in various kinds of uh, 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 facilities and systems of incarceration. Uh, We've had a 500% growth in imprisonment since 1980. Uh, We've also had tremendous growth, not just in the number of people who are currently locked up and incarcerated, but in the number of people under other forms of carceral supervision and correctional supervision, probation, uh, on probation, on parole, 
things like that. So there's been this dramatic, dramatic increase, like nothing we've ever seen before in the prison population since the late 70s, around 1980 or so. Um, and there's also been a drastic increase in the racial disparities in the prison system and incarceration rates in the United States. Now, that's not to say that they weren't already drastic before the onset of what we call mass incarceration. In uh, uh, the 1970s, uh, African-American rates of incarceration were already twice that of white Americans. Um, and people were already denouncing the prison system as an oppressive tool of state repression, uh, in particular for, um, for uh, holding down African-Americans. So that was already on the table. But now we have an African-American imprisonment rate that is more like seven times as high as that of whites. Mm -hmm. So uh, that uh, the growth of the prison system, which has been so dramatic in the past couple decades, has hit communities of color particularly hard and really, really drawn on those populations to fill up um, the ever-expanding number of prisons in this country. And just so people know that it's, it's right here at home, too, I mean, we've had at least a 600% growth in the total prison population since 1980 mm -hmm. here in Pennsylvania, right? right? That's up from about 8,200 people to over 52,000. Absolutely, yeah. And the, the racial disparities exist here at home, too. Mm -hmm. Yes, deb absolutely. Um, and uh, th that's very true. Uh, the racial disparities are very dramatic in Pennsylvania. Um, and then also, yeah, just the numbers climbing. I mean, in the 70s, we had about 5,000 people in the state prison system total uh, in the mid-70s. Today, we have over 5,000 people in the state prison system just who are doing uh, life without parole sentences wow. or death by incarceration sentences. So uh, when you think about that incredible increase, we have over 8,000 senior citizen pr uh, prisoners who are uh, 50 years of age or older. That's wow. just an exploding geriatric prison population. Wow. Something we're dealing with here in, in Pennsylvania. But, um, you know, there are all these different terms. There's mass incarceration uh, we hear uh, to talk about this phenomenon. We also hear the prison industrial complex. We hear the new Jim Crow. We hear the carceral state or the prison boom. There are a lot of different terms that are out there, and they have different meanings, different emphases. Uh, but, uh, you know, they're all referring to, at, at base, this tremendous increase this explosion, which is like nothing we've ever seen before in terms of the number of people uh, and the percentage of the population in the U.S. being locked up. So if this phenomenon, basically, that you're talking about and that we're talking about and that we talk about a lot because we're, we're fighting it, um, is about 35 years old. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, decarcerate is, is three years old. Mm -hmm. How long has it taken people to sort of catch up with mm -hmm. realizing how big this is? I mean, if it's 600 percent now... Then maybe like 10 years into it, it was, you know, a 300 percent increase or something like how how has the the fight against it played catch up against the phenomenon itself? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. And it's taken time for the movement and the political mobilizations against this thing um, to kind of come into consciousness about just what exactly it is that they're fighting against. And the term mass incarceration and others like it have been really important in that regard. So, um, you know, it, mass incarceration is a relatively new term. Uh, while the prison boom was 
happening and taking off in the 80s and in the 90s, there was no widespread movement against anything called mass incarceration as such. The growth of the prison system was, of course, the result of many different factors and many different parts of the criminal justice system uh, that were working to increase the prison population in different ways. Policing, sentencing laws, uh, the drug laws, the role of prosecutors and judges, uh, the parole policies, and the policies of prison administrators. So people took on, were taking on those issues. It's not like nobody was responding to what was happening, uh, but they took on those issues one at a time. And there wasn't a political language for talking about them all as one unified interlinked system, mm -hmm. the way that uh, the term mass incarceration refers to. So by the late 90s, a movement to abolish prisons was uh, taking off and gaining steam. Um, and uh, they started using the term prison industrial complex. That started to be something that we heard more and more. Um, and uh, that, uh, that's a term, prison industrial complex, that emphasizes the role of profit and all the kind of profit uh, and profiteering that happens in different ways in the prison system. And the most famous group in that, uh, uh, that uh, burgeoning prison abolitionist movement against the prison industrial complex in the 90s was, uh, is uh, what's known as Critical Resistance, which is an organization that was founded by a number of people, uh, including Angela Davis in uh, around 1998. So over the past 10 years, the term mass incarceration has gained uh, a lot of popularity. And one tricky thing about imprisonment in America is that there's no one government agency or official that's responsible um, for uh, uh, what's happening and accountable to the whole situation. It's really split up between different branches of government, executive, legislative, judicial, mm -hmm. federal government, state government, local government. There are all these different kind of wings and nodes of the state that are contributing to this, but they all can kind of turn and blame each other when it's mm -hmm. time to talk about what's really going on uh, in the overall crisis. So here in Pennsylvania, the Secretary of Corrections, John Wetzel, is always pointing the finger at uh, legislators uh, because they're the ones who are writing a lot of these sentencing laws um, that are causing the prison population to go up. The legislature says, well, we're just doing what's demanded of us by the voters. You know, we have to get elected. We're doing what they want. Uh, district attorneys and police say they're just enforcing the laws as they're written in Harrisburg and in Washington, D.C. Um, so there's a lot of passing the buck that, that goes on, and that's kind of built into the system. So one advantage, an important advantage of the term, having a term like mass incarceration, is that it allows us to take a look at this huge array of laws and different policies that drive prison growth as parts of an overall system. So the answer to taking this on is not just tweaking policies here and there, but we need a transformation across the board in how we deal with crime and violence and incarceration and public safety um, in Pennsylvania and across the country. I think, I think a really important um, way to understand that system is also, you know, I think why, why you're here somewhat is, is to look at the historical roots of it, you know, I think Angela Davis, you just mentioned, um, has done really good work in kind of fleshing that out. How you know how slavery and and uh, capitalism, especially, you know, played into this kind of like, uh, you know, both commodifying people, in a you know in a way that that um, you know has funneled them into the mass incarceration system and also. Um, you know, kind of 
playing on this this history of uh, you know social attitudes and basically racism that that you know uh, grassroots racism that that's helped make that happen. Um, do you want to elaborate on that? Do you have a yeah, um, I mean, absolutely. The, uh, the, the system of mass incarceration, in order for it to take off the way that it did with so little public reaction to what was happening, um, reflects some very deeply rooted ideas about uh, race and state violence and, and expectations about who, uh, who is supposed to, on the, uh, so to speak, be on the receiving end of violence from the state, from institutions like incarceration and the police. So, and those uh, have roots that go very, very deep indeed, um, uh, back to uh, uh, well into the era of slavery and uh, you know, the beginning of settler colonialism in the US. Um, the way that those sorts of institutions serve the interests of whiteness define things like public safety and the public and the people in terms of whiteness, you know, in implicitly racialized terms. That's been powerful throughout the U.S.'s history, and it remains in the DNA of our mainstream political discourse, that kind of racism. Yeah, we're going get, get, to get to that, um, I think, in... Um, we're going to take a quick break for some music and we're going to come back and talk about those, you know, those three sort of uh, perspectives that you outlined earlier, um, which I think which I, I think and I hope we'll we'll touch on that in some some more detail. Um, and I think it's your point earlier about how we needed this language to even talk about this system. And we needed this, you know, um, the, the vocabulary to articulate that this was bigger than these individual parts and that each, you know, these policies were part of a greater whole um, is also a good reminder to why we have decarcerate and why decarcerate is a coalition. Um, decarcerate came out of an individual issue, this prison expansion in Montgomery County that's still going on despite how unpopular it's become. And it was the recognition that this was this single, you know, physical issue, this construction, which seems very, you know, very tangible and something like you could oppose in a, in a pretty simple, not in my backyard way was going to have this ripple effect and affect people all over the state in all sorts of different ways. And people, you know, doing work that is uh, on the surface, maybe not closely related. You've got, you know, YASP, who's fighting Act 33, you know, that expands the number of crimes that um, that young people can be tried as adults for, and they recognize that this is linked to them. Even though they could compartmentalize and fight their little issue, um, they recognize this is part of this system of mass incarceration as it applies to our state here in Pennsylvania. And and decarcerate came out of this, and our three point our three point platform, which is much more comprehensive than just a not my backyard um, knee jerk reaction, mm -hmm. developed out of the recognition that we needed some sort of comprehensive um, response to this complicated mm -hmm. system mm -hmm. of connected um, laws, policies, regulations, and just enforcement practices. Um, that together constituted this this really remarkable system of oppression um, mm -hmm. in our in our communities. So we're going to take a quick break. Um, we're going to come back and hear more from Thomas uh, about all the different um, you know historical perspectives that inform um, the way this this that system of oppression has developed. 
left him on a Tuesday, found him on a Sunday. Cry when I saw my handkerchief in his suitcase. Letter folded neatly in his pocket with my perfume. Knew that he was lying when he told me he'd be back soon. I couldn't sleep the night he left me with a promise that he'd always keep me close. When the struggle got the hardest, so I wiped the tears, tied the handkerchief around me, rallied up the troops so we could find a Spanish army. It was time to stop the crying, time to start the fighting. Love was the beginning, but my people steady dying. And so I promised him the same thing. Gabriella blast in the name of the Philippines. When I heard about the blast and I knew the little girls who were killed in Alabama It was Carol, Addie Mae, Cynthia and Denise And the clan got away in cahoots with the police Knew that it was coming when the Panthers started forming So I booked the first flight to the States in the morning To show them my solidarity Tightened up my afro, books in my hand, revolution in my heart So I used my education to combat the injustice More than Malcolm X and Martin Luther in the trenches Soldiers put your rifles up, Angela Davis ride when the clan try to light us up. I can hear him in the back of my mind, he said. Slavery, living in the valley, stocked in California, picking grapes with my family and my people broke their backs just to make a couple bucks. While the whiteies in the town ridiculed us in their trucks, so I picked up the megaphone, shouted to my people, El Pueblo Unido, Hamasera Vencido, told them to stick together, demand to be treated equal. Otherwise, these fucking crackers will continue to abuse us. Threw me in the slammer 20 times and some change. Yeah, they broke a couple ribs, but the spirit remains. To it again in the heartbeat But I'm a gente, Dolores, what they call me I can hear him in the back of my mind, he said Back, you're listening to 88.1 FM WPEB in Philadelphia, your West Philly community radio station. This is Decarcerate Radio. We're here every Saturday from noon to one talking about how we as Decarcerate and our many allies and friends are working to end mass incarceration here in Pennsylvania and across the nation. We have Thomas here today along with the rest of the Decarcerate Radio crew talking about the historical context for mass incarceration and even what we mean by that term. Um, we got started with with some of that, defining mass incarceration and talking about why we even need to be um, using that kind of language to describe this interconnected system of oppression and why it's so important to be able to identify it. And he's going to give us a little bit more um, context, he said, about the historical roots of it. But first, right before the break, um, we were talking about the the way in which mass incarceration is uh, a connected sort of web of different policies and enforcement practices. 
and why groups like Decarcerate um, work as coalitions. I was wondering if you could talk, you know, if you could speak a little bit more to that um, with with a national context, how some other groups in other states Mm -hmm. are dealing with this. And and maybe just a little bit more about the history or the um, the evolution of the movement to fight mass incarceration, which I think is a is a parallel or at least a staggered, delayed um, related trajectory from the from the implementation of mass incarceration itself. Well, as we were talking about before, the term mass incarceration allows for this kind of systematic uh, analysis of what's going on. Um, to kind of connect these different uh, aspects of the criminal legal system uh, and the punishment system. Um, So that's a useful term, but it's really only in the past five years or so that mass incarceration, um, that language, has entered the mainstream political vocabulary. And I think a a big part of the spread of that uh, terminology is uh, Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, uh, mass incarceration in the age of colorblindness did did a lot to sort of popularize that term. Um, so uh, now uh, today we see political groups like Decarcerate PA, um, like Californians United for a Responsible Budget in California, like Milk Not Jails in New York or Jobs Not Jails in Massachusetts, which is having a big rally uh, on April 26th on Boston Common, if we have any um, uh, listeners out there on the, for the uh, webcast. Um, Decarcerate Connecticut, I think, is around now. Decarcerate Illinois. Um, all of these movements are popping up and these organizations and coalitions are popping up. We're connecting the dots between specific criminal justice policies and practices, but also connecting the dots in broader ways and looking at how budget cuts, uh, economic policies, education policies, immigration enforcement, how all of these things are connected in sort of a web uh, uh, to, to mass incarceration and are part of mass incarceration, pushing people out of schools, pushing people out of their homes and out of their communities and into the clutches of the prison system. So um, all of these different groups that are emerging are are doing extremely important work in, in forging uh, uh, coalitions between people working on different kinds of issues that are all entangled in mass incarceration. So a new movement for decarceration is emerging, and it demands that we take a broad and systematic view of mass incarceration and not just find ways to tame or reform it and focus just in on the criminal law uh, aspect of it and what aspects of criminal criminal legal code should be changed, but think about how it's embedded in much broader uh, structures uh, and patterns of dispossession and oppression um, and and suffering. We really uh, we really should have trademarked decarcerate early on. Maybe <laughs> all of our fundraising problems would be out the window. We just license it all across the country. That would be great. Um, to move a little bit to the historical side of things, I was wondering, one of the reasons that people, when you talk to them about this, have trouble reali- thinking about it as a, a recent uh, phenomenon or a, something that's changed is because prisons have been around for a long time. I mean, n- nobody thinks of prisons as, as a new thing mm-hmm. or as a thing that happened in a relatively, you know, in, in my lifetime. Um, not to disclose too much information over the you know or the radio, but I haven't been alive as long as um, mass incarceration has been. So for me, you know, this system is the only thing that's ex- that I've ever you know experienced as as what defines a criminal legal system or what defines imprisonment. But prisons have been around for a really long time, and I think that's part of the what normalizes this. Why it's if if somebody had just come in and implemented a huge 
um, oppressive racial structure, um, a la uh, a new form of Jim Crow in a more obvious sense, in a in a you know a whole new set of things uh, or a whole new set of devices and institutions in our society, it would be easier to recognize, or we would have noticed it faster. But imprisonment has been around a long time. I was wondering if you could if you could start your historical um, background by talking a little bit about how this um, form of punishment, imprisonment, mm-hmm. which is very normalized to us and seems somehow natural, um, evolved or came about. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So there are many, many failures of the prison system that we can point out. But one of the prison system's great successes has been establishing itself uh, as something that seems natural and normal and timeless, that has always existed and always will. That's a very deeply entrenched idea. But uh, uh, the fact is that incarceration, as we know it, is a relatively recent invention. Now, imprisoning someone in one way or another, holding them against their will, holding someone captive, that is an old thing. There have been prisoners of war, um, uh, different kinds of confinement uh, uh, going very far back in history in many different cultures and traditions. But when we talk about incarceration in our society, we're talking about the use of confining someone against their will as a punishment in and of itself. And that is something that was invented um, a little over 200 years ago. So uh, after the Revolutionary War, right here in Pennsylvania and in Philadelphia, Quakers had been advocating for a new um, so-called humanitarian mode of punishment. Um, And they created something called solitary confinement as a replacement, uh, so they said at least, for flogging, hanging, and acts of public humiliation. And the idea was to leave prisoners alone with their consciences to experience a spiritual transformation that was supposed to happen um, while they were incarcerated. Um, And uh, they built the first solitary confinement cells behind the Walnut Street Jail in 1795 here in Philly. Um, So one thing we have to remember is that the idea of prison reform and a concern with the dehumanizing aspects of incarceration are as old as prisons itself. They go hand in hand from the very beginning. Prison reform has never been um, uh, a movement against prisons, um, but rather uh, a movement uh, to do do prisons better. Um, So... Within a few years, those uh, uh, cells in Walnut Street Jail's penitentiary um, were overcrowded. So they no longer had solitary confinement because they were crowding four prisoners in each cell. Um, And all of these... All of these cells were profoundly damaging to people psychologically. Um, It became clear right from the beginning. Um, But in 1829, because they said, well, those couple cells are overcrowded, um, Eastern State Penitentiary was constructed um, as this massive, massive, incredibly expensive new prison. And it was supposed to be all solitary confinement cells where people were held for 24 hours every day. By the time that the Civil War rolled around, Eastern State Penitentiary was overcrowded. Um, There was also a growing acknowledgement that the long-term effects of solitary confinement were incredibly damaging psychologically and were a form of torture that was perfectly clear to anyone who um, met someone who had experienced that that solitary confinement. Um, Prisons were also getting expensive, so prisoners were increasingly put to work to raise revenues and housed in small and crowded cells. 
So right after the Civil War, a big government report comes out. Um, and it said that none of, not one of the nation's penitentiaries, which were constructed around this idea of reforming people and rehabilitating people, none of the penitentiaries were actually even trying to rehabilitate anyone. They were just trying to make money. This is a big federal uh, government report uh, surveying uh, prisons across the country. And so at that point... And what year was that? That was uh, right after the Civil War. So that was, I think, 66 or 6, 1866 or 1867. Thomas, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. I have a quick question. So are the Quakers still running them at this point, or has it gone into someone else's hands? Well, so the Quakers uh, set up some of the first uh, penitentiaries here in Pennsylvania, um, and they continued to be very involved in uh, the Pennsylvania, what's now the Pennsylvania Prison Society. It still exists. Um, uh, they continued to be in, very involved in that for a long time, but this idea of building penitentiaries, building prisons, caught on like, uh, like wildfire. Um, and it spread across the U.S. and it spread across the world. People started building these penitentiaries in all sorts of different countries. So it was, it was started as, a, as an experiment of sorts um, by Quakers in Pennsylvania, um, but quickly was taken on by a lot of other people. And, and when they recognized that it wasn't, they weren't rehabilitating people and it, there wasn't any reform happening and it was harmful, mm-hmm. was there, were there any movements to, to counter it at that point? Or what was, what was happening around that, that discourse? Well, one of the big arguments, uh, unfortunately, instead of the argument that happened uh, being about whether we should be imprisoning people or not, um, it was about how we should be imprisoning people. Should they be in solitary confinement? Should they be given work to do? Should they be forced to do work? Um, uh, the Eastern State Penitentiary uh, was known as the Pennsylvania system of imprisonment with this uh, solitary confinement all the time. There was another system around the same time in New York at the Auburn State Prison, which had prisoners in solitary confinement at night, but during the uh, day they were brought together to work. Uh, to labor, and they had to labor in absolute silence. Any communication between them was forbidden and was brutally, brutally punished. So that was sort of the main alternative that was being put out, um, unfortunately, as opposed to rethinking this idea of do we want to be imprisoning people in the first place? I have, like, just, like, really quick thing, because, um, you know, we have uh, guests uh, in the past, they were talking exactly about the dehumanization of prisons, and I think that what you're talking about right now, you know, is by saying when they discovered that these um, methods were actually, you know, causing damage and mm-hmm. there were uh, forms of torture, and how by recognizing that, but still, you know, enforcing that, it's a recognition of, yes, we know that this is damaging and we are just going to be continuing doing it. And, you know, which is, again, you know, we're talking about how all this mass incarceration, you know, like the ratio of like um, mostly African-American immigrant people, people of color in prisons, how these methods of torture are still in the prison right now as a way to keep on, you know, changing slightly the ways of torture to people mm-hmm. of color in a way as a repression, but how this is like playing and, and the dehumanization of these prisons mm-hmm. that we have. Right. It's 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 pretty telling that when they figured out that this that solitary confinement is torturous, they changed it from being a default to being a punishment within the system. I mean, mm-hmm. now solitary confinement is used as the prison within the prison. Mm-hmm. And they've, you know, they didn't stop doing it when they found out that it made people go insane or it was the mm-hmm. worst thing that you could do to someone in in 
you know, while confining them, they just changed how they used it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Although it's also important to remember that solitary confinement, the way it's used uh, in prisons today is technically, in the, in the eyes of our Supreme Court, not a punishment. It's simply part of the process of managing and running a prison. And the important distinction there uh, in terms of the law is that because it's not considered a punishment in that a judge does not sentence you to solitary confinement, mm. a judge sentences you to prison, and then a prison administrator can then choose to put you um, if they think that it is uh, what they want to do. Uh, they can then choose to put you in solitary confinement. That makes it not technically a punishment from the law, from a judge, and therefore not subject to the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution, which bans cruel and unusual punishment. Um, so they're not really denying that solitary confinement in our prisons is cruel and unusual. They're just saying it's not technically punishment in the way that the Constitution uh, uh, puts it forward. That's, that's the opinion of the court, and that's the law of the land. So, uh, but in terms of the dehumanization, um, th from the very beginning, there's debates about the dehumanization inherent in incarceration, but there's also a fundamental assumption that prison is about dehumanization. You know, even if they spoke about rehabilitating people, you know, the idea of people would go to Eastern State Penitentiary and be reborn, you know, as, as, as new people and as new citizens who are going to be healed in all these ways, um, that was still premised on an idea that they would in some way uh, be subjected to living death, that they would be tortured in some kind of a way. And from that ordeal, they would be uh, reborn. So the, the notion of dehumanization is fundamental to incarceration itself, which means that debates about prison reform historically, and we've seen them happen again and again and again and again, have never been about do we dehumanize or not. It's how much do we dehumanize? How much is too much and how much is just the right amount of dehumanization? So there has been a cycle of waves of reform and rhetoric about reform over and over and over again after the, from when prisons were first created uh, here in Philadelphia, after the Civil War. Um, we see it happens, happen again and again. Um, uh, but the reality of incarceration, even though the rhetoric and the ideas are always cycling, uh, remains the, quite constant in several ways. Prisons are always overcrowded, and they're always getting more overcrowded. Prisons are always concealed from the larger society. They are shadowy, isolated places where guards and administrators have tremendous power over prisoners and very, very, very little accountability uh, for what they do to people who are incarcerated. And then third is this idea of dehumanization. The general public accepts the idea that prisoners are people who can be treated as somewhat less than human. That's a very uh, deeply entrenched idea, and I think it's, it's inseparable from, from incarceration. So these endless debates about how much dehumanization is too much um, go on, but there's a basic expectation that remains that, prisoner, that prisons are supposed to be spaces of dehumanization. Which, which it sounds also, again, you know, like um, we're, when we are talking about a human that lives in, in this country and like the human rights also, we're really talking about people of first and second and third class where also the rights of people, they, and then being in, in jail also, their, their rights are being taken. Mm -hmm. And that's a whole movement, right, that's been trying to not just bring these people back into society in a way, you know, that they can uh, have a rehabilitation. Uh, but then also, you know, bringing their rights back to be able to 
participate in a decision making and where this country is going. So it feels like it's not just the torture itself, but there's different elements there mm -hmm. that overall keep, uh, you know, bringing back this whole thing about we still have, we're still living under slavery. Mm -hmm. Like some people that's been choose by their race, you know, but like their class, those are the ones that are being into this third class um, humans that don't have rights. The, but we still need to put them somewhere, right? Mm -hmm. And they're still being abused. They're still being um, um, this whole labor issue that you're talking about it. And even, you know, so many things, their children have been taken away and then brought back into this whole thing. So it's mm -hmm. it just keeps going as a big thing. Mm -hmm. And I, I know that you're going to sort of trace this um, with the trajectory of African-American liberation um, and, and how the you know, Constitution was amended to allow for you know, slavery to exist in, this, in the case of imprisonment. Mm -hmm. um, but you also had, you'd said that before you were going to um, take a more recent view of how um, the, the social movements of the 60s and 70s sort of um, are a different lens through which we can look at mass incarceration. I mean, you, you just outlined how sort of... Um, uh, historical context of imprisonment in general is important as far as as seeing these those three patterns or those, mm -hmm. uh, those sorry those three themes emerge um, the concealment the dehumanization and I'm a bad student uh, I already uh, uh, overcrowding and overcrowding, the overcrowding. Right. if right. they build um, it they will fill it they will overfill it then they'll try and build another one yeah which we certainly mm -hmm. see in the case of the Greaterford expansion here um, in Pennsylvania mm -hmm. which I mentioned earlier. But um, I was hoping you could you could move to that that second point about the how this plays into a more you, you're not talking about something that's overtly political when you're talking about the the imprisonment earlier, mm -hmm. um, or if it is, it's not seen within um, it, it's not necessarily connected to other political movements. Mm -hmm. But the '60s and '70s, you know, it seems like um, you're you're making a connection there that that's politicizing imprisonment in a way that. Um, that maybe wasn't present before or was present in different forms before that? I don't know. Um, I mean, there have been political movements around uh, incarceration um, uh, that have been very significant. There was a major campaign to abolish uh, prison labor, con the contracting of prisoners' labor um, in the late 19th century, in the early 20th mm -hmm. century. Um, but there have also been all sorts of, uh, what do you say about things not being political is important, all sorts of consensuses. Right uh, around incarceration, what it should be, who deserves to be there, um, that have held this thing together. The things that people don't argue about, right? The dehumanization in the first place. Um, those are those are elite consensuses. Mm -hmm. Those are consensuses among the elite. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And there are consensuses where um, uh, where dissent from that is kind of stifled or disguised in all sorts of um, uh, subtle or or brutal ways. That's absolutely true. Yeah. In the 60s and 70s, we see it becoming more overtly political, or what's was it just that other political it became useful as a as a as a tool mm -hmm. that had previously gone less recognized in 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 stifling a different 
form of mm-hmm. political dissent, or what's what's the what's the the sort of sea change there? Mm-hmm. So today's mass incarceration uh, movement against mass incarceration it carries on the legacy of other uh, social movements and radical movements from the 19- born in the 1960s and 1970s, if for no other reason um, than because so many of their Im- their participants were in- were incarcerated or still are. Um, as part of or in connection with their their participation in those movements. Um, the Black Power Movement, the American Indian Movement, the Puerto Rican Independence Movement, uh, Chicano Movement, Gay Liberation, uh, all uh, they all sought profound changes in the larger society. Um, and prisons were an important part of how the state tried to destroy those movements. Um, COINTELPRO, framing uh, the FBI, you know, working to frame and imprison activists, inciting conflict and violence within um, uh, movements and within uh, activist groups, um, outright assassinations. That was uh, extremely important uh, part of the state's repression of those movements. But prisons were also crucial sites for organizing. And you have leaders like George Jackson, who um, was sentenced to one year to life, an indeterminate sentence, at the age of 17 um, for uh, being convicted of stealing $70 in a robbery, spent the rest of his life um, incarcerated, but became a uh, major, major leader um, of the Black Panther Party and the Black Power Movement while he was incarcerated. While he was incarcerated. So um, you have political prisoners going into the prisons, you have politicized prisoners coming out, um, and the result is that there was a profound consciousness about the role that prisons play in maintaining larger conditions of inequality and injustice. So thinking about racism, thinking about capitalism as fundamentally a part of um, prisons and prisons as fundamentally a part of racism and capitalism and those structures of exploitation and domination. So activists, I think, at that point um, really could not avoid thinking and talking about prisons um, and and could not often avoid going to prison um, uh, during that time. And it seems a, a, a pretty obvious, um, broad stroke um, social cue that, that dissent is criminalized mm-hmm. and that the sort of um, conflating of those categories, the fact that, that people who look like something are dissidents and dissidents are criminals and criminals are people who look like that. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a circular logic that mm-hmm. helps sort of um, define people before they become dissidents or before they become criminals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's this tremendous kind of beefing up of the uh, the state's powers of repression through incarceration. Um, uh, a new interest that the state has in imprisonment as a as a tool for political domination, um, and this is just on the eve of the prison boom. This is just before and just as the prison boom starts taking off and the prison population starts to rise and rise and the racial disparities become more and more um, uh, dramatic than they already were. Um, so absolutely, this is, uh, and again, this is, this is before the prison boom is happening, but people are talking about prisons as instruments of racial domination and white supremacy um, and capitalist exploitation, even before the prison boom happened, you know? Um, it's really kind of remarkable how powerful their analyses were for, uh, for things that hadn't even happened yet, but that they could, they could then explain once they did. So um, to... Mm-hmm. To, to open this to kind of the, the, even the longer history of uh, the African-American freedom struggle in particular, 
Um, mass incarceration today is often referred to, as we've said, as, as the new Jim Crow. And this is a comparison that points out very helpfully um, similarities between the Jim Crow era and its discrimination and the discrimination that is faced today by incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people who are disproportionately uh, people of color. The comparison between the new Jim Crow um, and the old Jim Crow also reminds us how it was right after the old Jim Crow officially died in the 1960s uh, with the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, all these things that were supposed to put uh, Jim Crow uh, 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 away uh, forever, uh, right at this time that the wheels of mass incarceration and the wheels of the prison boom begin turning. So the U.S. had a system of slavery for keeping African-Americans down. Then they had a system of Jim Crow, which included racial segregation, sharecropping and debt peonage, where people were forced into slave-like conditions um, through legal means, through contracts, um, and then convict leasing, where thanks to the 13th Amendment, which, as you uh, mentioned, Owen, it officially abolished slavery, but it left slavery legal if it's punishment for a crime. Um, because of the 13th Amendment, convict leasing created a system uh, in the South uh, where slavery was literally recreated as uh, African-Americans were swept off of the streets and out of their communities and uh, put in bondage and set to work doing the exact same kind of labor uh, while, while uh, you know, wearing chains uh, uh, that was happening before um, emancipation. So there's this transition from slavery to Jim Crow, and now a new system, right after Jim Crow dies, uh, uh, supposedly, appears, a new system for racial domination. So it's complicated how these systems led to one another. It wasn't necessarily, this is something people argue about and scholars argue about, how one transitioned to the other and why. Um, however, we cannot afford to ignore that pattern. Um, but one thing that is fortunate is that this is not just a pattern of racism and oppression that is getting repeated over and over again, but it's also a pattern of resistance. So it's ever since the days of slavery, African Americans have been fighting against oppression, but they've also been reimagining what freedom means, what it, what it means uh, to be free, what it can mean. So runaway slaves or maroons uh, created their own underground railroads. They created their own communities separate from those of their oppressors, found ways to create freedom for themselves and invent freedom, um, which they'd never experienced before. After slavery, uh, there was a struggle to make freedom real and meaningful. You know, people were trying to see um, uh, uh, what had to happen for emancipation to really be uh, uh, a meaningful event. And this is what uh, W.E.B. Du Bois refers to as the idea of abolition democracy, right? The true abolition of slavery in all its forms and the replacement of it with uh, true forms of democracy that had never been seen before and still have never been seen. Um, uh, uh, in, in the United States in its recent history, at least. Um, so uh, that's about realizing the promise of, of both democracy and freedom. So there's a shared struggle of a fight against Jim Crow segregation, fight against lynching, um, the incredible uh, uh, surge in mob violence that followed the Civil War and then increased again around um, 1900, um, the shared struggle of, uh, with the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s, with the Black Power movement um, that takes off um, in the 60s, and today's decarceration movement. Um, so I think it's important that uh, we uh, follow the lead of that uh, black freedom struggle in not being satisfied with the official definition of freedom 
that U.S. society offers, but ask, how can anyone be free if some people are enslaved right now? How can anyone be free if some people are being lynched right now? How can anyone be free uh, if some people are being imprisoned? So the legacy uh, of the ongoing African-American freedom struggle is one of imagination. Um, and that imagination uh, is absolutely vital to the movement for decarceration and to the movement to create a world without mass incarceration where that, where that is history. Yeah, I think one of the things that um, that we that we have inherited that's a difference between slavery in its original sort of shadow slavery and um, mass incarceration that's important is and and Michelle Alexander actually points this out in her book is that um, in order to implement even uh, you know the the small sort of apology that claims that mass incarceration is race blind or that our society is race blind. Um, and in other ways that, that point out how, um, how class-based mass incarceration, like the, the implementation of mass incarceration is, how it's been disproportionately, you know, poor people, working class people who have been imprisoned and affected by it. Um, there have been a lot of other people caught up in this besides, you know, besides just African-Americans or people of color. And there is an understanding, I think a growing understanding, when you get those stories um, into the mix, that this, that this really does affect everyone. And we can see how it permeates all levels and, and all races um, around the country. Um, and that's, that's you know, fodder for building a coalition and for building uh, the type of movement that um, they can actually overturn something as big as uh, as mass incarceration and as pervasive as mass incarceration, um, because it's it's about including people in that collective imagination who have been um, who have been told by the by the powers that be by the elites that their self interest lies in the status quo um, that that because you know. Um, they aren't oppressed at quite the same level mm-hmm. or in quite the same ways that they should go along with the system as it exists. Including those people um, means, you know, m- means amassing uh, true grassroots power. Mm-hmm. And I think that from my, our experiences in decarcerate, talking with people all over the state on the march to Harrisburg, um, it's it's evident that that's possible and that it's happening and that it, it needs encouragement, but that it's it's moving forward we do have a regular segment on decarcerate radio um voices from the inside where we read statements from people who are currently incarcerated or we air clips today um we have a clip that we're gonna um play for you um from a strong decarcerate ally um and and a member of hrc the human rights coalition Um, and we're going to play that for you and then come back for some final closing thoughts with Thomas. Um, It's from Shakabuna. This is Shakabuna talking about um, the abolition of, um, or the the end of juvenile life sentences um, in Massachusetts. Let's fight against censorship, for censorship is a tool used by government to suppress the voices of people who take the bold stand to speak truth to power. Abolitionist Law Center sues Pennsylvania Department of Corrections 
for censoring the movement magazine. The past three years have been nowhere near great for Pennsylvania State Prisoner Robert Salim Holbrook. Salim, initially confined to the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections infamous state correctional institution Green, was transferred to SCI Cole Township in August 2011. Before Salim's transfer from SCI Green, he had received all 12 issues of the movement published by the Human Rights Coalition since the Human Rights News magazine was founded in 2008. However, after Salim's arrival at SCI Cole Township, all issues of the movement mailed to him began to be arbitrarily denied by mailroom officials on the grounds that its content advocates violence, criminal activity, racism, and is a security threat to the facility under the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections Incoming Publications Policy 803. Policy 803, Section 3E3, allows any publication to be disapproved when the publication contains content considered to pose a potential threat to security. Such content is defined as the manufacture of explosives and weapons, the manufacturing of poisons, drugs, or alcohol, writings advocating violence, insurrection, or guerrilla warfare, writings advocating criminal activity, racially inflammatory material, and maps that would facilitate an escape. Mailroom officials intentionally misuse Policy 803 to censor publications sent to prisoners that raise prisoners' awareness of their cruel and inhumane prison conditions and treatment, that express non-establishment-approved history, culture, and religion, or left-wing politics, that educate the public about prison community-related issues of human rights and mass incarceration, and that are critical of the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections officials, policies, and practices. Policy 803, Section 3, E2 explicitly states that no publication shall be prohibited solely on the basis that the publication is critical of penal facilities. So mailroom officials prohibit publications they personally dislike on the basis that it presents a security threat on the policy 803 instead. Attorney Brett Grote of the Abolitionist Law Center in Pittsburgh, PA, will be representing Salim and the HRC against Pennsylvania Department of Corrections officials in a recently filed First Amendment censorship lawsuit under Section 1983 Civil Rights Action for their censoring of six issues of the movement from 2011 to 2012. On January 1, 2012, Defendant Jellin denied the movement, issue number 13, alleging that pages 44 to 46 contained racially inflammatory material or material that could cause a threat to the inmate, staff, or facility security. However, pages 44 to 46 of issue number 13 contained a letter from an African-American prisoner discussing mass incarceration and its impact on the African-American community. Defendant Jalen then denied issue number 14 of the movement, alleging that pages 40, 42, 48 to 51, and 54 advocated violence, insurrection, or guerrilla warfare against the government, advocated criminal activity, and contained racially inflammatory material. Yet these pages contain stories of human rights violations within the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections, the second half of the letter from the African-American prisoner, and a petition for a commutation for a woman sentenced to life without parole. 
Defendant Jellin also denied issue number 15 of the movement, alleging that pages 39, 43 to 45, and 53 advocated violence and insurrection and posed a threat to prison security as its basis for censoring. Then, on January 23, 2013, Defendant Jellin denied issue number 17 of the movement. Check this out, alleging that pages 1, 2, 3, 4 plus, that is, every page in the publication contained racially inflammatory material or material that could cause a threat to the inmate staff or security. Incredible. Salim appealed the censure of all six issues of the movement to defendants Verano and Woodside, whom each upheld the censoring actions of defendant Jellin. Attorney Brent Grote, in response, stated, This lawsuit challenges the ability of Pennsylvania Department of Corrections to target political dissent and human rights defenders with arbitrary censorship. The First Amendment protections at stake extend far beyond the confines of this particular case and touch upon the daily lives of millions of people in prison. The content of the material censored by SCI Cole Township and central office officials touch on the most vital issues of the operation of the prison system in Pennsylvania. Juvenile sentenced to die in prison, deaths in solitary confinement, repression of human rights defenders inside prisons, advocacy efforts by families of prisoners, and the pervasive racism that defines the criminal legal system in Pennsylvania and the U.S. In this context, freedom of thought, speech, and association carry life or death consequences. Let's fight against censorship, for censorship is a tool used by government to suppress the voices of people who take the bold stand to speak truth to power. Learn more at abolitionistlawcenter.org and hrcoalition.org by Kerry Shakabuna Marshall. These commentaries And welcome back to 88.1 FM WPEB Philadelphia, your West Philly community radio station. Uh, We actually played a different clip by Shakabuna than the one um, that I described earlier. Um, But uh, we will be featuring more, including the one that I mentioned on future Decarcerate Radio. That's thanks to um, Prison Radio. Um, They made those recordings, and uh, we appreciate them letting us air them here on WPEB. Uh, Before the the break, and this is, you know, we're going into our last couple minutes here on the show, um, we were talking about... Um, about how the collective imagination of African-American liberation is an inspiring um, sort of mandate for us to to imagine uh, new worlds and worlds without mass incarceration. And I was bringing that into to, to bear on how um, some of the attempts to make you know a race blind racist system um, have caught up people of all races and how there is some uh, newfound or growing solidarity among among people all over the country um, to fight a this you know overwhelmingly racist system. Um, I was hoping you could uh, respond to that briefly and then offer up any closing thoughts that you have about this um, amazingly comprehensive uh, history that you've given us in our short hour here today. Yeah, I just wanted to cycle back to something we were talking about earlier with uh, the dehumanization that has been inherent in the idea of incarceration and the philosophy of the penitentiary uh, since the very beginning. When 
people were first subjected to long-term incarceration and solitary confinement at places like Eastern State Penitentiary, there was an implicit uh, and often explicit comparison people were making uh, because this was 1830 or so, and slavery uh, was uh, extremely, extremely well established in the U.S. at that point. Um, so there was an implicit comparison of the person who is incarcerated with someone who is enslaved. And a lot of the debates that happened about whether that dehumanization was acceptable in its, you know, the form it took, was it going too far? had turned into debates about whether white men who were incarcerated in these prisons, and they weren't the only ones incarcerated there, but the debates were about whether white men should be subjected to such a thing. And those debates left untouched questions about whether others uh, should be, whether women, whether people of color should be subjected to that kind of dehumanization. If the idea of imprisoning someone in its original form was about taking away someone's liberty, someone's freedom, when we're talking about the United States, especially in the 1830s, uh, nobody was guaranteed any kinds of rights uh, underneath the Constitution besides white, uh, uh, white men and preferably white land-owning men. That was only beginning to change back then. Um, so we have to think about what are the, what are the things that pr the prison system has always taken for granted. It's taken for granted dehumanization, and it's taken for granted the dehumanization of people of color. There are some things it's capable of making debates, having debates about, and there are some things that are so deeply built in and ingrained into its DNA um, that it can't help taking those things and those kinds of oppression and racism uh, for granted. So we find ourselves today at another moment um, in the history of incarceration in the United States um, where uh, things seem to have gone too far and there's this renewed interest in reform that's being expressed in different ways. Um, but what the historical pattern of prison reform reveals is that um, in the past, the state's answer and the answer that's been successfully put forward to the problem of prisons has always been more prisons. Reformers have attempted to make better prisons, gentler prisons, smarter prisons, but incarceration has always remained the answer to the problem of incarceration. So if we want to break that cycle and break the assumptions um, and the oppression that's built into incarceration itself, and break that failed cycle of prison reform, we need to look not to incarceration, but to decarceration and focus on ways uh, uh, to reduce or eliminate our use of incarceration and not just refine it or polish it. Thomas, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, we also usually mention upcoming events that are happening, um, being you know, put on by decarcerate or allies or people in the community. Um, there aren't a lot in the next week or two that we're aware of. There's always Books Through Bars on Tuesday. They do their packing cafe, helping send reading material to people currently incarcerated uh, all over the Mid-Atlantic. And that's Tuesday um, at the A-Space here on Baltimore Avenue um, from 7.30 to 9. Um, there's also the meeting in Harrisburg that you mentioned on the 24th. That's part of Decarcerate's um, statewide organizing efforts, and that'll be at 2 p.m. in Harrisburg. You can find out more information about that and everything else by looking at our website, decarceratepa.info, or uh, looking us up on Facebook or you know following us on Twitter. We tend to talk about the things that we do ad nauseum. Um, and then there's... I just want to mention really quickly, um, they also, um, the carcerate is preparing the third anniversary. We're still talking about where it's going to be happening, but just so people put in their calendars, I think it's going to be uh, May 9th. 
May 9th. Yep. So just so people is, you know, where the that's going to be happening and we're going to be putting uh, pretty soon on our website where and what time is going to be happening. But just it's it's a big, you know, celebration that we've been working together, fighting mass incarceration um, for three years, which is important and relevant, you know, and all what Thomas was talking about. I think it's, you know, we have also to celebrate that we are struggling and that we are like together, you know, building this movement. Um, but, you know, easier sometimes to be working you know this struggles when you have actually you know people that's been working around it for so long and i think three years is it's it's a long way and thank you anna for um giving me a moment to reconsider it's not april 24th it's april 26th i believe that the it's saturday april 26th i miss i uh, I got the date wrong there. Um, and I thought about that because our next general meeting is Monday, April 28th at 6 p.m. at the Friends Center. So everybody who wants to know more about Decarcerate, learn about how they can get involved with our very active um, committees who are doing the hard work that we collectively are doing together, um, should come on April 28th. That's a Monday at 6 p.m. at the Friends Center. Um, one more thank you to Thomas and to... Um, to everybody in the Decarcerate Radio crew for coming out and we'll see you or you'll hear us next Saturday from noon to one here on 88.1 WPEB um, 88.1 FM WPEB in Philadelphia your West Philly community radio station Thank you.